Happy Mother's Day. Raise your hand if you always obeyed your mother. Wait, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. When your mom was right and she was righteous and she told you to do something, raise your hand if you always and immediately obeyed your mom. Raise your hand. Yeah, right. Actually, I've met your mom and she taught you not to lie. Um, <clears throat> most of us, unlike these few who raise their hand, most of us as children, even as small children, we developed a litany of objections, right? We had them very ready. They were on the tip of our tongue. They were objections that we were ready to voice whenever we were disobeying mom, okay? I need some volunteers. Let me take one from each section. Somebody from this section over here. You've been up before. Let's say, come on up. You can come. Come on. Yeah, leave your book. Come on up on stage. Somebody from this section. Uh, Annika, let's have you. Come on up. And somebody from over here. Uh, Kate, you want to come? Come on up. All right, good. Okay, here, come over on this side, guys, so everybody can see you. Very good, let me turn this on. Uh, tell everyone your name. Monica. Very good. You're on the end. Your name? Caroline. Caroline. Oh, I did pick all girls. Oh, well, that's fine. Okay, and? Kate. Kate, very good. Nice suntan, Kate. Looking great. All right, I'm going to walk you guys through uh, some scenarios, and I want you to just give me very brief, quick answer, just what pops in your head. Okay, here's scenario number one. Take a look. Your mother has just told you to clean up the living room. You don't want to do so. Now, I know you guys are awesome. You always want to clean up, but just go with the story. Okay, suppose you don't want to. How do you express your objection? What, what do you say back to your mom? Okay, you don't want to clean the living room. What do you say? But mom, I'm tired. That's a good one. I like that, mom, I'm tired. No. No. Very nice. <laughs> that... We call that direct willful disobedience. It's great. It's awesome. Yes. Dad told me to do something else. Dad told me to do something else. Ooh, so crafty. That's brilliant. All right, number two. Ready? Here's, here's scenario number two. Your mother's just told you to turn off whatever, to put down the book, turn off the tablet, whatever, and go do your homework. You don't want to do your homework, okay? So how, how do you express that objection? What do you say to mom? You don't want to go do your homework. My homework's on my tablet. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> See, I like how you didn't say that wasn't what you were doing, but it, it, that's really very good. Yeah. My dad told me to go do my homework at my friend's house. Oh, very nice. Yeah, yeah, and your dad's flying, so she can't check. That's really wicked. Yeah. Um, what I have a few more minutes. I have a few more right. minutes. Yeah. Mine was always just five more minutes, Mom, just five, five more minutes. I, I, somehow I thought she did, wouldn't be able to measure five minutes. It was incredible. All right, third one. Your mother commands you to go cut the grass for the old lady down the street. Old lady down the street, and she can't cut her own lawn. Mom says, you need to go mow her lawn. What do you, what do you say? To, you don't want to. Okay, what do you say to Mom? The lawnmower's broken. <laughs> That's great. That's good. Dad's using it. Dad's <laughs> using it. That's nice. In a little bit. In a little bit. Very good. That delay tactic is great. Can you give a hand to my friends? That was just awesome. You guys, great job. Okay. Now, here's what's, here's what's uncanny, and I, I, I just I knew it would work this way. Not only did you guys sound just like me as a, as a boy, just like it, but you know what you did? The things you said sound exact, guys, they sound exactly like what Moses says in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, Moses sounds exactly like a child who does not want to obey authority. Um, while you turn there in your Bible, let me give you a quick recap on the book of Exodus so far. Turn in your Bible, if you would, to Exodus chapter 4. And while you do, let me give you a recap. Actually, this recap didn't originate with me. It, what I'm going to tell you was written by Sarah Gosfener, uh, one of our church staff. She had no idea I was using this and probably wouldn't have given permission, so I didn't ask. Um, 
You see, our executive pastor, Andy Sipes, he recently required, this was pretty cool, he required every one of our staff, since you and I are studying Exodus, he required everybody on our staff to read Exodus 1 through 3, write down their observations, and share them with each other. They were brilliant. They were just all wonderful. But I thought Sarah's summary of Exodus 1 through 3 functioned as a really nice catch-up for us as you and I get ready to study chapter 4. So here's what Sarah said. Um, she said, reading through Exodus 1 through 3, one is struck by the desperation fear produces. Pharaoh's fear of losing control leads him to horrendous treatment of the Hebrews and the murder of Hebrew baby boys. We are all capable of such things when we allow fear to rule our lives. By contrast, God provides an example of appropriate fear, the midwives' fear of the Lord. She goes on. We also see how the Lord's will is accomplished again and again despite what man tries to control. His purpose will be fulfilled. And if I take a step of faith, like Moses, I will have the privilege of being part of his plan and being transformed by his faithfulness. Now, this last thing that Sarah wrote, I like so much I put it in your notes. Um, you, got, you got a bulletin when you came in, right? Look at your bulletin. Open it up. Inside her notes, look on the left-hand side. You'll see the last paragraph that Sarah wrote to summarize Exodus 1 through 3. She said, and I quote, Exodus 1 through 3 also reminds me of God's commitment and involvement in my life. He hears my cries. He sees my oppression. He is aware of my suffering. He comes to me. He is ever-present. This truth is the one that speaks to me the most. He is my Father. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Okay, with those great truths in mind, go to Exodus chapter 4. Let's read verses 1 through 9. Exodus 4, 1 through 9. Then Moses answered, and I'll give you the context in a minute, what he's talking to God about. He's at the burning bush talking to God. What if they won't believe me and will not obey me but say, the Lord did not appear to you? The Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A staff? Khakis, he replied. Um, <laughs> then he said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground and it became a snake. Moses ran from it. Moses isn't stupid. But the Lord told him, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he, Yahweh, continued. So they will believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, white as snow. Then he said, put your hand back inside your cloak. He put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it had become again like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. Stop there. The big idea is this. God, God has said to do something. We'll talk about what in a minute. And Moses objects with this question. What if, what if they don't believe God specifically has told Moses to go back to his first home, back to Egypt, and to lead the Hebrews out to freedom. This was God's command. Look at chapter 3 uh, real quickly. We'll just summarize it. Verse 16 through 18. Yahweh says, Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me and said, I paid close attention to you and what's been done to you in Egypt. And I promised you that I will bring you up from the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then look at what God says in verse 18. They will listen to what you say. God has told Moses, go. God's promised his own presence with Moses, however invisible to other people. And he has prophesied the good result. 
But Moses objected. He dug in his heels and he asked, what if they don't believe? I mean, you said they would, but what if they don't? Now, we look at Moses here and we listen to him spouting such faithless nonsense and all we can think is, thank goodness we're not like that. (laughs) Right? Or are we? C.S. Lewis was convinced that we are very much like that. I don't know if you've read much of Lewis, but possibly the greatest hero that C.S. Lewis ever produced was a little girl named Lucy, the British girl who became a forever queen in the magical world of Narnia. Lucy is awesome. Interestingly, C.S. Lewis uses Moses' burning bush conversation with Yahweh as a model for one of Lucy's conversations with Aslan. Aslan is the Christ figure in the books that Lewis wrote. Aslan's a lion, and he represents Yahweh, Jesus, God himself. Let me read to you from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Prince Caspian. Listen for the parallel here, okay? Aslan speaks to Lucy. Go back to the others now. Wake them up. Tell them you have seen me, that you must all get up at once and follow me. What will happen? There's only one way of finding out. Do you mean that's what you want me to do? Gasped Lucy. Yes, little one, said Aslan. Will the others see you too? Asked Lucy. Certainly not at first, said Aslan. Later on, it depends. But they won't believe me, said Lucy. It doesn't matter, said Aslan. Oh, dear, oh, dear, said Lucy. I was so pleased at finding you. I thought you'd let me stay. I thought you'd come roaring in and frighten the enemies away, and now everything's going to be horrid. It is hard for you, little one, said Aslan, but it has been hard for all of us in Narnia before now. Stop there. C.S. Lewis is making sure that you and I do not overlook our own mosaic tendencies. If the greatest leader in Hebrew history, Moses, if he could express doubt and disobey God, if Lucy, the amazing Lucy, could do the same thing, then you and I are not immune. We're no different. Thus, God's response to Moses applies to us. And God's response is a beautiful treatise of trust. It's in three parts. A three-part treatise of trust. Say that three times fast. Part one concerns the physical power that God's going to provide for Moses. Moses is going to have control over Egypt. He's going to take the tiger by the tail and subdue it. Or rather, I I should say, he's going to take the serpent by the tail. Yahweh turns Moses' staff into what, everybody? What's he turn it into? A snake. And Moses wisely runs from that. God very likely uses a snake here. I don't know if you know this, because a snake is the symbol of Egypt. Lower Egypt, Egypt is in two parts, upper northern Egypt and lower southern Egypt. Uh, I mean, um, sorry, Upper southern Egypt and lower uh, northern Egypt. Lower Egypt is the, is the seat of power for the new kingdom pharaohs. It's where they're trying to unseat the Hebrews' grip. Lower Egypt has been known for centuries already at this point as the Cobra Kingdom. Okay, Lower Egypt was always symbolized by a snake. The serpent stood for, for Egypt's mastery, their mastery of power, their mastery of wisdom. In fact, even beyond Egypt, the snake became a symbol for worldly mastery, worldly wisdom. That's why a snake was employed as the symbol for Asclepius, the, the Greek god of medicine. Speaking of medicine, that's the key part in, in part two of God's response. God displays his supernatural power not only over Egypt, but over medicine. Look at what he says. He has power over medical restoration, even of a, of a horrible advanced leprosy. This is a big, big deal, folks. Verse 8 says that when Moses shows this miracle, many people who didn't believe after the snake demonstration, they may become convinced now. Remember, in the ancient world, there's a very powerful connection between the gods and disease. 
In particular, disease in the ancient world was almost always seen as a sign of divine judgment. So ancient religion mainly was practiced to keep the gods off your back. Ancient religion was doing the right things, following the right formula, so you could be disease-free, especially of untreatable maladies like leprosy. I've, I've quoted Dr. Stewart a couple of times in this series. Once again, he is spot on. Look what he says about verse 8. For Moses to say, in effect, look what Yahweh can do with disease, was virtually to ask, can the gods you've been worshiping heal like this? And the obvious implied answer is no. So through Moses, God's going to exercise, that's what these symbols are about, control over Egypt and control over disease. Now that should answer Moses' fears about people not believing him. But just to be over the top clear, God adds a third promise. Look again at verse 9. Verse 9. And if they don't believe even these two signs, or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become what, everybody? Blood on the ground. Here's God's response, part three. The Nile turned to blood. This is huge. Using the symbols of the time, Yahweh is showing a permanent power over life. Power over Egypt, power over disease, power over all of life. Notice this one didn't change back. The snake becomes a staff again, right? The, the hand becomes clean again, but the Nile remains bloody. The, the, the import of this permanent change of the Nile cannot be overstated. I've got to give you a little bit of background so you can understand it. Okay, look up here. I want to show you an ancient, very ancient hymn. This is to the Egyptian god Aton, okay? Hymn to Aton. Thou makest a Nile in the underworld, thou bringest it forth as thou desirest to maintain the people. By the way, anytime you're reading an Egyptian text and it says the people, that means Egypt, the Egyptians only, the, the natural native Egyptians. All distant foreign countries, thou makest their life also, for thou hast set a Nile in heaven, that it may descend for them and make waves upon the mountains like the great green sea to water the fields in their towns. How effective they are, thy plans, O Lord of eternity. The Nile in heaven, it is for the foreign peoples and the beasts of every desert that go upon their feet. While the true Nile comes from the underworld, for whom, everybody? Egypt. Notice all the other peoples get rain from the Nile in heaven, and that's nice. But Egypt, only Egypt, has the true Nile. This is the main issue in how Egyptians viewed life. Their country was the one source for all pure blessing in the world. The Nile, which represents all of Egyptian life, was literally the God's gift to the world. Think about, think about it this way. Think about the way Texans rhapsodize about their barbecue, okay? All right? That's how Egyptians viewed the Nile. Think of how Coloradans talk about their mountains, right? Think, think about the way communists talk about their government, right? They, what, what, what their thing is God's gift that sustains the world. That is how Egyptians saw the Nile. Scholar John Wilson uh, really nicely summarized. He said, they saw the Nile as the source of all fresh water. And what's Moses going to do with this Nile? He's going to show that God can turn it into blood. This means God has control over all of life. Both essences of life, blood and water, the two essences of life, they are malleable in God's hand. Yahweh controls Egypt. He controls disease. He controls all of life. All God's people said, all right, so if that's true, then why did you and I spend all that time fretting last week? Why did we worry so much? You know we did. We acted as if God isn't who he is. We thought as if he is limited by our objections. That's why you and I so desperately need this time in the Bible. We who should know better still need, every day we need reminded about God's 
power. Speaking of objections, look at Moses' next speech, verses 10 through 12. But Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent either in the past or recently since you've been speaking to your servant because I'm slow and I'm hesitant in speech. Yahweh said to him, Who made the human mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Uh, on the right side of our notes, look to the right side of our notes, we describe this as Moses objects. I'm not a speaker. Do you see what's happening here? Moses is seeking a way out of obedience. But the only real way out is found in following Yahweh. That's very likely why the Hebrews named this book Way Out. The, the, the Greek name for the book is Exodus, which is what we use. But the Hebrews called the book, their title for it was Way Out. The whole book is about following Yahweh's lead. You can object all you wish, but you will never find the real way out in life until you follow God. And, and by the way, this particular objection, uh, Moses is almost certainly lying. He just doesn't want to obey. Acts chapter 7 verse 22 suggests that Moses is deliberately downplaying his natural talent. Look, look what we learn in the New Testament. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. Of course, we all do this, right? Kid says to mom, mom, I can't, I can't take out the garbage because my back, I hurt my back, my back really hurts, right? Five minutes later, same kid is jumping on the trampoline in the backyard, uh, always. And, and, we're, and we do the same thing as adults. Lord, Lord, I, can't, I just can't give sacrificially to your work because we, we don't have enough money. Three months later, same guy spending $4,000 on vacation. We're not, we're not talking about legitimate stewardship. We're not talking about the need to rest. Those are healthy. You know the difference between wisely doing what God calls us to do, including resting, including taking care of our backs, and excusing our lack of obedience, which is almost always rooted in a lack of trust. Look, look at Moses. He appears scared here. That's why he doesn't obey. Because he doesn't trust. Same's true for me, probably for you as well. When I don't trust, I don't obey. They are connected. 150 years ago, this dude, John Samus, he was considering this connection. He was really thinking hard about the connection between trust and obedience. Uh, Samus was a professor at an institution that later would become Biola University. And he wrote a little couplet. Look what he wrote. He said, trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And, and that's the real miracle into which God invites Moses here. The miracle of trusting and obeying the Lord. I have seen God show off, friends. I have witnessed miracles, including miraculous healings. I have seen unexplained moves by governments that blessed God's people out of nowhere. God has walked me through the same lessons that he's teaching Moses. M many of you can relate. And I testify that Moses is missing out. He is missing the chance to be involved in the biggest miracle of all. You know what the biggest miracle of all is? To just believe God and do what he says. When you and I go to work trusting the Lord to do what he says to do, we are going to obey and obey him. When we rear children without panic and in compliance to Scripture, when we use our God-given gifts according to God's desires, not our own desires, when we take each first step every day to follow Yahweh, we are enjoying the miracle that Moses, sadly, at this point, is missing. Now, of course, God once again responds to Moses' objection, and God's answer makes it clear. It is the sender that matters, not the one sent. Look, look at verses 11 and 12. Yahweh said to him, who made the human mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. 
God, using his covenant name Yahweh, says that he will accomplish what concerns Moses. The success of the mission is not dependent on Moses. Y yes, God graciously is allowing Moses to participate, and he, he needs to go, but the maker of mouths will give him the right speech. The giver of noses and eyes will make sure the right things are smelled and seen. In our anthropocentric minds, we imagine that we are the most important thing in any endeavor, right? Our abilities, our vision, our dreams, that is the key issue in success. It's a multi-billion dollar business, folks telling humans that they are the secret to success, and it's a lie. Not that humans shouldn't be involved and do their best, but it is the sender who actually matters most. The sender. The 20th century Christian songwriter, Rich Mullins, he wrote a very insightful poem about this. Um, look up here at what Rich had to say. Talking about the world, and he said, they said, boy, you just follow your heart. Well, my heart just led me into my chest. They said, follow your nose, but the direction changed every time I went and turned my head. And they said, boy, you just follow your dreams. But my dreams were only misty notions. But the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams, he's the one I have chosen, and I will follow him. All God's people said, look, your, your heart and your nose and your dreams may be fine tools that Yahweh uses. That's great. But the sender, Yahweh, he's the key issue in any endeavor. Sol Solomon speaks to this during his Song of Ascents. Uh, Psalm 127, read it with me, would you? Verse 1 of Psalm 127, you read the underlined text. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. It is the sender that matters. Every servant leader who steps out in faith learns this lesson. We all do. It's always spoken to us in God's word, but then we must experience for ourselves its validity. Solomon's father, David, he learned this lesson as well. Take a look. Psalm 138, uh, David, David is reminding himself about this very issue, what he knows to be true. Look, look at the last verse of Psalm 138. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Thy loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Look at the last line. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Isn't that fascinating? Notice the plea at the end. David's scared here. He's stepping out in trust, and he raises the petition that never needs to be asked, but almost always is. Don't forget your part of the deal, Yahweh. Right? Can you, can, can you relate, my friend? What specific mission has Yahweh placed before you these days? What, what is the opportunity for you to follow the maker of noses? Is it a new job? Is it a new ministry? Is it a fight against a sin pattern that you have never been able yet to beat? Whatever it is, remember the truth. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Oh, you, you can pray the third line. We almost always do. But don't let yourself miss the first two lines. Yahweh will accomplish the mission. Speaking of Yahweh, notice the Lord. You see that, that phrase in the, in the English Bible? Like Solomon David is using the name that God revealed to Moses, his covenant name, Yahweh. Yahweh is the special covenant name of God. It is always used of God's relationship to humans by grace. It, it is the name for a commitment that cannot and will not ever waver. Remember, Yahweh is also related to the Hebrew verb to be. Yahweh is thus the I am. The I am is self-existent. His covenant is tied to the fact that he is and always will be true to himself. Now, that, that kind of eternal self-existence is, is, is beyond our comprehension. I understand that. But we need to talk about it because it speaks to God's personal provision. When he has a grace covenant with me that is based in his existence that can't change, 
that changes me. I, I got a letter recently when I taught on the name of Yahweh. The author uh, noted this. This is really well said. The author wrote to me, Wayne, the monumental, stupendous, brain-bursting thought to me here is I am who I am, self-existent, no beginning, no end, the first cause of all creation. It's, it's too much to grasp. I can say the words and mouth the concept, but I'm like Job after God appeared to him. And Job said, surely I spoke of things too wonderful for me to know, close quote. Yahweh is sovereign. He provides everything that is needed. Following him is what matters. It is the only thing that matters. But Moses digs his heels in, and he shares a third big objection. Look at verse 13. Go to verse 13. Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and also he's on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will be your spokesman, and you will serve as God to him. And take this staff in your hand that you'll perform the signs with. Stop there. Moses objects, right? Send someone else. Our hero tries to duck the calling. Get it? Duck. I, I like it. Anyway, um, there, there is a marked parallel here with the much later prophet Jonah. We're going to go more into this next week, but I, I think we should introduce the concept here. I want you to look at this amazing parallel between Moses here in Exodus and, and Jonah. Each of these prophets, if you know the story of Jonah, each of them is called to speak God's truth to a very hostile land. Each of them tries very hard to refuse the call. Each of them faces an appropriate death penalty. You're going to see in the, in the next thought section next week, we'll see just what it means that God's anger burned against Moses. Now, each of them learns from the divine chastisement they receive, and God spares both Moses and Jonah. God then renews the commission to each of these prophets. Each of them finally engages, and success comes by God's grace and God's power. Now, the Lord crafts these parallels in Scripture on purpose. The connection allows us to learn about each of these reluctant servants. For example, for example, Jonah is plagued with terrible problems like racism and self-centeredness. Now, those sins aren't expressly stated in, in Exodus chapter 4, but we know we're supposed to see connections between Moses and Jonah. Thus, it is very possible that Moses' racial struggles, which were seen earlier in his life, are still giving him fits. And we, and we should probably understand that Moses is very likely just as self-centered as Jonah is. For certain we know Moses refuses God's call, just like Jonah. At least it appears to me that that's what is happening. There are, I should tell you this, there are some scholars, not many, but there are some, who try to declare that Moses is just exercising humility here. He's actually employing a typical Middle Eastern humility formula. I'm unconvinced, folks. God says, go, Moses refuses. He's not playing pretend that he's humble. Moses is just flat out disobedient. He's like our friend up here who said no. That's why God's response this time is to get really angry. When I was a coach, I often gave, as coaches do, very specific commands to my players. When they directly and willfully disobeyed me, my anger flamed like the burning bush, all right? Now, unlike me, God never sins in his anger. Um, any of you ever have a coach or a parent get righteously angry at you? If, if you ever were like Moses here and you just flat out refused to do what's right and your coach or parent or teacher got angry at you, raise your hand if that's ever been you. Okay, the rest of you probably need to learn about lying. Um, <laughs> that's great. We can sadly relate, right? Now, tell me, 
What did your teacher or coach or parent do when you were too scared, especially when the reason you disobeyed was you were too scared, too obstinate to go forward? Many times they paired you with another student. Whatever else was involved in the chastisement, they gave you a slightly older mentor to guide you through this learning curve. For example, one time I was coaching a football team and I had a young defensive back. No exaggeration. This kid had more raw talent than all the rest of our squad put together. Amazing talent. But he was completely undisciplined. Complete, kid wouldn't even listen to me at all. So I told him that he had to go work out with another group. And I put him with the oldest, most experienced guys on our team. And they beat the snot out of that kid. It was awesome. They just worked him over every day. And I just sat back and chuckled and chuckled. And you know what happened? By the end of that season, that boy had changed. He was, he was with the program. He became a leader. That's what we do as parents and coaches sometimes. We use peers to motivate our reluctant charges. And that's exactly what God does for Moses. Yahweh's answer is to provide a human partner. Aaron is Moses' older brother. He's three years older than Moses. Uh, Aaron was born between the second and third pogroms in Egypt, the, those horrible persecutions by which the pharaohs tried unsuccessfully to thin out the Hebrew birth rate. Aaron's role is to specifically assist Moses in public speaking, and conflict management. Moses is the prophet. He gets God's words. Then Moses shares the truth with Aaron so he can direct the interactions. And as we're going to see in Exodus, God's strategy really works. It works well. Look, look, here's how everything flows from this point forward. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 1, Aaron and Moses are going to both speak to Pharaoh. Chapter 5, verse 3 records that they, Aaron and Moses, said. Chapter 7, Aaron alone speaks. He speaks for Moses. But then in chapter 8, a little further along in their development, Moses speaks to Pharaoh himself. And you know what? From that point forward, every single time someone speaks to the authority, it's Moses who does so. Moses is changed. God gives Aaron, and that's a move that tips Moses into effective obedience. And, and of course, again, you saw that God promises his own divine guidance. Think about it. The very appearance of Aaron in Midian speaks to God's engagement in unseen and unsearchable ways. God already moved Aaron to get up out of Egypt, make the long trek out to come see his little brother. This speaks to the unfathomable sovereignty by which Yahweh is superintending everything. And this combination of God's guiding presence coupled with human partnership, that's what changes Moses. God's help and a human partner move Moses from a reluctant slave into a servant leader. C.S. Lewis was so moved by this that he borrowed the whole scene wholesale for what happens next to Lucy. Okay, li listen, I'll pick up where we left off with Lucy, and this is what comes next. Lucy buried her head in Aslan's mane to hide from his face, but there must have been magic in his mane. She could feel the lion's strength going into her. Quite suddenly, she sat up. I'm sorry, Aslan. I'm ready now. Now you are a lioness, said Aslan, and now all Narnia will be, re will be renewed. But come, we have no time to lose. And we'll stop there, though I could read that all day. C.S. Lewis took Lucy's, that sudden transformation, she set up suddenly, he took that straight from Exodus. Look at Moses, he quickly jumps up from this chapter four encounter, and I don't know whether it's God's anger, or it's the good news that, that he's not alone, or both, but Moses jumps up, he hits the ground, running. look at verse 17, Moses starts to scoot off without his staff. God has to call him back. Hey, don't forget the staff. Take what is later known as the staff of God. Moses is he has finally changed. He is ready to run. Moses has begun his transformation into becoming more than a conqueror. Many of us are fans of uh, Joanna Gaines and her husband, Chip. 
their show Fixer Upper, some of you are smiling bigger than you have all morning long. Um, their, their show Fixer Upper is a huge international sensation. The, the economic impact on Waco, Texas has just been incredible. I think even more astounding is the eternal impression that is made as, as the Gaines family naturally and just winsomely lives out their lives as followers of Jesus. It's really beautiful. Now, what very few people know is that Joanna Gaines had to go through a Moses moment before she was ready for all this fame and influence. I want to read to you from an article, just a brief part from an article. Listen to this. Shortly after opening Magnolia Market the first time, Joanna felt that the Lord was transitioning her to stay at home with her children. Unable to both manage the store and be obedient to God, Joanna made the heartbreaking decision to close the successful little shop. And just like that, Joanna trusted God's plan and said goodbye to everything she had worked so diligently to build so she could be home with her beautiful babies. Joanna shared this about her decision. Here's what she said in the article. I remember the last day. You know, we're closing the shop down, and I'm crying because it's the end of a dream. And I feel like I hear God say very clearly, Joanna, if you trust me with your dreams, I'm going to take Magnolia further than you could have ever dreamed, so just trust me. I remember hearing that and feeling completely peaceful about it, and I walked away. Close quote. Friend, Yahweh responds to every one of your objections. As you and I listen to what he said to us and we say, no, 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 that hurts too much, he answers that he will accomplish what concerns us. We just need to obey. It is time to get up and go, and don't forget the staff. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Let's take a moment to respond to all this. Uh, turn to the Lord who, who loves you and just talk to him about this. Let me just ask you this. As you're praying, talk to God about what it is that you are resisting. Lord, what am I resisting? Is it a mission? Is it some scripture you don't like? Is it a calling to live out honestly who you are? Is it a conversation with somebody who is, <clears throat> who is powerful, who is enslaved, who is enslaving? Talk to Yahweh about it. Listen to this scripture that you've just read. Listen to it applied to your life. Let him motivate you to trust and obey. And while the Christians are praying, I want to I speak to those of you who are resisting the good news of freedom in Jesus. Listen up. Please listen up. God is so committed to being with people that he went a step further about 1,500 years after Moses. Yahweh sent the second person of the triune God, Jesus. He came to earth to die in your stead. He paid the Passover price for your sin so you could have an eternal life with God. You just need to trust him. Right now, right now, just confess. Just confess the truth that you are disobedient because you are. Talk to God about it. Be honest. And tell him that you receive his grace, his unconditional love, his loving kindness that is everlasting. You receive Jesus. You trust him who died on the cross and rose from the dead for you. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. Step out. Pick up the staff. Good for you. Amen. Praise God. Father, I pray for all of us, especially, speaking of sacrifice, Lord, I, I, I pray for the offering we're about to give. I pray that you use us and you use this offering to make more and more servant leaders and set more and more captives free. All God's people said, amen.